Hey, George Cedarquist here, co-host of Opera Box Score. I know you want to get to the podcast. I'm going to keep this short. As we get ready for season six of the OBS launching September 14, we're asking for a few bucks to help keep the show going. Your donations help us bring you the best interviews. Like Lydia Yankovskaya, Matthew Polanzani, uh, like Brenda Ray, like all of the amazing moms we had on the Mother's Day episode. And it helps us bring hot takes from all over opera land. Since there's so much live performance going on right now. We're bustling. <laughs> We're busy. Hey, look, five bucks buys an ad on Facebook. Ten bucks pays for a month on SoundCloud or Squarespace where you can see and... my dreadful web design skills. And look, 20 bucks could get... Oliver, what? Uh, a friend. <laughs> Go to operaboxscore.com slash donate to help season six be the hottest, funniest, and best-est season yet. Enjoy the podcast. Live from Chicago, you're listening to Opera Box Score. Uh, let's get ready to rumble! Wherever you are, however you're listening, it's America's Talk Radio Show about opera, period. From the Ravenswood studio on the north side of Chicago, it's Opera Box Score. I'm your host, George Cedarquist, joined this week by Oliver Camacho, Matt Cummings, Weston Williams, and Ashley Hardgrave. It's the first episode of season six, and we kick it off with a tag team interview when Oliver goes inside the huddle with the founders and editors of Opera Wire, brothers David and Francisco Salazar. And then, the bracket set, it's Joyce DiDonato versus Benjamin Bernheim and Julius Drake versus... Julius Drake? Find out who is nominated for a 2020 Classical Grammy, plus all your headlines in the two-minute drill. Season six starts now, and boy, do we have a full house tonight. Oliver Camacho, always great to look a full a full zoom house. deep into your eyes through the screen. Yeah. <laughs> so we didn't have a show last week, so we couldn't talk about how Novak Djokovic accidentally hit one of the lines with quote unquote uh, accidentally. Right in, yeah. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> right, we'll in, right in the throat. I mean, he was the heavy favorite to win the men's U.S. Open, and it cleared the way for some of the young guns to come in. And they keep talking about how it's the first time that somebody that was born in the '90s. Uh, will who won the U.S. Open yesterday? Spoiler alert: If you didn't see it, uh, it was Dominic Team who has the best buns in tennis. I have to say, he's got some beautiful legs, and that man, <laughs> um, and he competed against um, Alexander or Sasha Zverev, who sort of looks like uh, Timothy Chalamet if he was blonde and had a really like nasty facial hair. Uh, so it was a really nice match to watch. <laughs> I, I, and it was a great match, actually. Five sets. You got your money's awesome. worth. Ashley, did you see any beautiful legs on the gridiron yesterday on Sunday? Did I? I started on Thursday watching those beautiful legs because the NFL is back, however freaking weird. Uh, so, yeah, so I watched the uh, the opener with the Chiefs-Texans on Thursday and all of the 
very interesting symbolism that was there, but I definitely was very excited about the Bears winning in a squeaker yesterday. My boy Anthony Miller caught one at the last second that gave us all a heart attack. Uh, and I think it might have solidified Trubisky's job a little bit more. I was definitely yelling at the television for them to put Foles in at the top of the fourth quarter because he was deeply inconsistent. But then, uh, then we came back, and I'm feeling, I'm feeling a little better. Um, are any of you guys, by the way, doing fantasy leagues? Are any of you doing a fantasy football team this year? Am I the only one? You are not the only one. I am part of a fantasy football league for the first time ever, and I'm going to tell you who it's with at the end of the show as my good call, bad call. I have my own fantasy with Dominic team, by the way. So. <laughs> I'm also doing a fantasy league. Uh, I'm playing a uh, dark elf. Uh, I'm level 10. Uh, I'm from the land of, of uh, uh, high fantasy. I've got a little hat and I can do little magic tricks. I have <laughs> no idea what that means. Let's talk some opera. Huddle up. Let's go inside the huddle. George, you didn't ask Matt about sports. I'm hungry. Season <laughs> six is here, Oliver. I'm hungry for opera. It, it's all right. You know, but he had a even, so, he had a social justice sports contribution. And so. I did. I wanted to just give shout outs to Naomi Osaka, who is not only an incredible tennis player who who got her hard won victory over Victoria Azarenka in the final this weekend, uh, but used her platform to continue to speak up for Black Lives Matter and the victims of police violence against uh, Black youth in America. And we we got to applaud. We have to stand a legend. So she um, had seven different masks that she had designed, uh, which each had the name of a victim of police brutality or who was killed unjustly, lynched. Um, and so she had to win seven matches in order for all of us to see <laughs> all seven of those did, masks. So that was pretty Did great. you guys, did you catch wind of the, uh, the gaffe of the Australian reporter that was trying to interview her and comment on it and basically said, I can't wait to see which mask you do next. <laughs> oh, God. Oh, God. So um, last week I had a great opportunity to talk to Francisco and David Salazar. And we have to give them credit that, like, if it wasn't for those guys, we probably wouldn't have one third of our show <laughs> every week. <laughs> Amen. So if you don't know, uh, they are the founders and editors of Opera Wire, and they also have a new show, it's not that new anymore, uh, on the Dallas Opera Network, where they basically do their own two-minute drill. But they're not sassy. They just give the news, and they don't give like the, the quick takes. So that's what makes us special, even though we're basically stealing their content. <laughs> what makes us special is, is the sass. Uh, that, that's what we've got going for us. That's been the story of my life, Weston. <laughs> so we have a sort of a deluxe length interview, and I actually had to cut off the last five minutes of it because um, I didn't want this episode to feel very long, especially since we were supposed to be recording at WNUR today, but COVID. So um, at the end of the interview, I asked them, to name uh, an aria or a, an opera or a composer or a singer who really inspired them to uh, come to opera and who keeps them motivated when they think about how wonderful that particular work or person is. And we're going to start with David's selection uh, as a transition to the interview. Uh, he loves Maria Callas, and he selected Maria Callas singing Casta Diva. 
So we're going to hear a live performance of Casta Diva from New Year's Eve in 1957. And then you'll first hear David Salazar describe how Opera Wire came to be. My brother and I were working for this organization called Latin Post for a few years, and we were entertainment reporters over there. And while we were our time, we, we focused on sports and movies. But I, you know, suggested to the editors, why don't we try opera? You know, it's not necessarily the Latino uh, pastime that they were associating with, but we wanted to give it a shot because we loved opera and we wanted to do some something with it for the organization. They gave us a shot and we realized that there was a big audience for it. So a few years later, Latin Post, you know, they they went bankrupt, the organization dissolved and we found ourselves kind of looking for what was the next project we were gonna take on. And we were brainstorming about a couple of ways we could go. And we said, well, why don't we take those skills that we learned at this place online journalism and create our own thing. And why don't we make it about opera? Because we hadn't really seen a news website that kind of focused on opera on a larger scale. You know, there's a lot of blogs out there. There are a lot of people that kind of touched on subjects of opera, but I don't think anyone really did a full on news organization. So we wanted to give that a shot. So that was December of 2016 when we launched. You know, we thought it was an experiment. We're gonna see how it works, how it evolves. And, you know, Four years, almost four years later, you know, we have, I mean, a couple of months ago, we had a million viewers, a million readers for, for a couple of months straight. And I mean, we're just, we're just growing. We publish 80 articles a week. And I mean, it's, it's, it's becoming quite the, uh, the monster project. So, so there's so much I want to touch upon that you already mentioned, but Francisco, before I get to those questions, can you just describe the various, like, you know, wings of Opera Wire? Like you have like your um, news content, yeah. you have your features content, you have your et cetera. So Opera Wire, we cover all different types of sectors of opera. So we have our news section, which is basically the one that gets populated every single day. And we have our indie opera, which focuses on the more smaller companies. Uh, but it's really important because there are so many different opera companies that people don't know about. So it's basically highlighting those smaller companies that, to be honest with you, are not really small, are basically part of this industry and are growing in such a way that are giving voice to new and uh, new generations of opera. We have our interviews, uh, you know, which we talk to different um, directors, to singers, to composers, behind the scenes people. We have our, um, uh, we have 
we have our word search. We have a quiz that we release every week and our word searches that we release every single week. Those are just fun games that, you know, people are really entertained by. We have our Opera Meets Film section, which basically is a way of combining, using our both passions of opera and film and analyzing different films that use um, opera. And we also have our reviews, which are important for every single time we go to performance. And we've gotten reviews out of Europe, out of uh, uh, United States, out of Latin America, out of different places around the world, both big and small and regional companies. And we've seen so much traction from everyone and people have really used those to, to also um, market their own their own productions. So, I mean, that that's really where we combine and of course we have our social media channels or Instagram channel which is kind of a way of promoting our interviews and our reviews and also celebrating people's birthdays or celebrating people's like you know I started when uh, opera wire weddings so when a, a singer gets married we like to plug them there or you know our Twitter page which is basic our Twitter page which you know every hour there's a new, a new story that we share we do throwbacks there we also do recommendations for films and for example right now they're streaming uh, so I like to you know use the opera meets film and, and give like a recommendation or go and, and recommend a CD of a streaming based on the streamings of, of, of certain artists and our Facebook page, which is more general, which basically gives us the news that's coming out every single day. And sometimes going to back to some throwbacks of our, of our um, previous articles, if, if the artist is doing something. You would think that in the era of COVID that you guys would have less to write about, but I feel like there's so much content coming out of this site. And, you know, I, uh, on Opera Box Score, we, you're just basically a resource. Like, and I'm, I have to say, I'm going to go back to something you started off with, that you were working for this, what was the name of the organ? The Latin Post. Latin Post. I mean, we take for granted as people in this community that you have some journalistic background. And thank God that you do, because as you said, there are so many other sites out there um, so. Well, you know, it, 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 it is important to be as give as much information as possible, because the problem that happens now, it's quick bits. You you people don't read or get the c complete information because it's based on little excerpts from he said, she said, or this happened or that happened. And ultimately, that's not really getting news. That's basically just giving us sound bites and basically what you want to hear and a you know, and the story is bigger than a soundbite. And a lot of the times it gets misinterpreted if you don't give, or, or, or the wrong information is given if you don't give as much information about what it is you're writing about, whether it's a production, whether it's a, um, a performer doing something, it, it has to be given as, as complete as possible. And, and I just want to dovetail on what you said, um, because we, we, we don't have the longest articles. A lot of our articles are under 200, 150 to 200 words. Some of them are longer. It depends on the content. It depends on the information. We also recognize that, you know, for example, with our audience and online audience where people want to just jump from one thing to the next. Um, and a lot of the cases, the news that we provide in terms of cancellations or productions or, you know, performance information, it's not something that you're going to want to, you're not going to read for, you know, 20, 30 minutes. You want to get the basic information that you need to be able to take, you know, to understand what's going on. And so I think that we've also adopted a system where we know that our audience is not going to read some stories that, that are longer, that have a certain length, but we understand the vital information that they need to get to be able to, to you know, we understand. Because what's... as much as a cancellation, 
uh, article happens if you don't write the full story of why that artist canceled or what that artist, why is that artist being replaced? There's so much gossip or so much rumor and so much misinformation that could go if you don't have the complete information in that article. So what's funny is that I do agree that your news articles like get to the point and give me the information that I need, which is sort of the opposite of your reviews. Your reviews are long, but I have to say I'm so happy that they are because you guys actually talk about the singing. And I can't tell you how many times I read a review and it sounds like, did you even go to see this show? Are you just telling me like your first page, you're telling me about the opera, its history, blah, you know, and then maybe you mention one or two singers, but you don't even say anything about them that will help me feel like I understand that you were there and what the experience was like. And so I have to say, thank you very much for talking about singing. And uh, I understand you're both musicians, but you're not, neither of you are singers. I, I took some singing lessons okay. in college for a couple of years, so I do know a little bit about it. Uh, my wife is also a singer, so we talk a lot about ah. it as well. So I, I plug do for have, your wife. I do have. Yes. <laughs> um, yeah, she. Um, yeah, she's a mezzo soprano. Runs a blog called Three Sixty Degrees of Opera. Okay. I might have heard of. Um, but so I, I have that background, and um, the, the, in terms of the reviews, um, that's a philosophical thing that my brother and I have talked about a lot. Um, when we were at Latin Post, I, we did reviews. And um, one of the things that I instilled in I my editors and I argued for a lot was that they needed to be thought of as analysis, less so than review. I think the word review kind of has been, I don't want to use the word bastardized, but people kind of just see it as like, I'm there, I'm going to write a couple of lines about what I saw, and then I just move on with my day. And I just feel that I've always felt that when people, I, you know, how much work goes behind the scenes and putting an opera together and how much like passion and things that people put on stage. And so I feel that they're on there for two hours. You can't, you have to have more than one sentence that you can write about a performance, you know? And that's what we strive for. And that's, that's one of the things that when I bring in a writer who's gonna do reviews, who wants to do reviews, I got a lot of people that tell the write to me and say, I wanna write reviews for Opera Wire great, what do your reviews look like? And then we have to kind of work on figuring out how they can fit into that philosophy of, I need an analysis mindset from you. And I need, because that's how you respect the work. You know, I'd rather, there's a lot of reviews that I write that perhaps some people are not gonna like because I don't necessarily like the performance, but I wanna be able to explain to them why. I don't wanna just throw it off in one or two adjectives and say, this singer was this and this. I don't wanna judge people like that. I wanna actually present my thoughts and analyze what I saw in the performance. And, and that's, that's how my approach is. That's what I try and instill in all the writers. My brother and I have been trying to work on that style for a long time. And I know a lot of people, I've heard the criticism. It's so long, it drones on for whatever. We don't have the excuse. We get, we're on the internet. If you don't want to read it, you don't have to. You know what's I, interesting about that philosophy? Sorry, Dave. Um, it's that it gives you also the ability and it gives you the freedom to be able to speak about a singer, not just in good or bad terms, it's basically analyzing a full performance because there may be some performances that we don't like, but there's still some really good stuff in that performance that we can also talk about. So we're not only talking about whether it's good or bad, we're, we're basically giving you our experience of what we thought about that performance. You know, a great example of this I read uh, in pre preparation for this was um, the 
<laughs> recital by a famous German tenor for a famous American opera house that was streamed across the world. And um, I love this tenor. I'm a huge fan, but I also know that he's not perfect and he makes choices. And your review is very careful to say, yeah, there was some great things, but there was also some, I think, coarseness was the word I read. It's like maybe this aria wasn't so successful, you know. And it's just, a, it's, yeah. a, it's actually, that has to do with the program. Like who in their regular course as an opera singer has to sing 12 arias, you know? <laughs> Unless it's a handle opera, you know? <laughs> but you still get a break between each one, you know? I mean, and, 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 you know, I think everyone knows what we're talking about, but without naming names, if you look on certain programs from that company since then, and you see the, the, the way that the repertoire has been adapted and how it's been shifted, some of the latter performances have been far more successful in terms of programming, in terms of the approach, in terms of the execution, because there is a little bit more of a, there is, there is the, uh, I mean, the last recital that they present, there was much more of that recital feel. And, and then the, the, the music, the musicality, the performance, everything came across with greater quality. And it was just an yeah. overall much more. Give them a show. chance to sing some songs, put some video content up for a while, give them a break. Like, yeah, it's, it's starting to take shape. So poor guy who had mm -hmm. to be the, had for to be sure. the guinea pig. <laughs> 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 so you, like you said, you guys are putting out 80 articles um, oh. a week. How do you decide mm -hmm. what is PR from XYZ company and what is actually newsworthy? I mean, for example, for me, we cover, because it's fun, we cover these stupid stories about, ooh, this singer gave an encore, you know, and it never happened before. But actually it did, and, like, this singer actually sings encores all the time, especially at this place, you know. To me, it's clear that that is that company just trying to, like, make noise about a production that they have, you know. What is your kind of litmus test? Like, ah, that's, that's BS, you know. Well, you know, it's interesting with, with, with the, in terms of, like, something like an encore, especially if it's a historical moment, then that's, uh, that is news because it's history and it's part of something that doesn't really happen very much. I mean, we were at a performance where that happened on an HD and, you know, that was kind of a historical moment because it was the first solo encore for an artist. So it, it, it is something, I mean, in terms of, in, in terms of what is, what is newsworthy? I mean, it's what's going on in the opera world and what, and what can be, be seen as as a, a way of getting that story out there for the company. I think you know something like a cancellation is a major story for sure, uh, but something like a new production that's happening or something like you know a company does announce you know concert performances. Right now, I think for example in COVID, I think there was it, it's very difficult to 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 see what's not and what is because I think right now with companies reopening and, and announcing new, 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 new concerts and announcing new things, people want to know what's going on in the opera world. And if nobody is telling you what's happening, then I know you're not getting the news anywhere, then you're going to miss that concert. You're going to miss that performance. You're going to miss what's going on in, in the world. So I think it, it, you have to ask yourself, what is going on? Is it a story or is it just something that's, you know, going towards the private life of, a, of an artist that really has nothing to do with with celebrating and, and creating and finding uh, what's going on, I think. I think, I mean, to, to, to add on to that, I think we have two different audiences. I mean, we have many different audiences, but there's two audiences that I think are pretty distinct. There's people that are in the industry, and then there's the audience members that 
love opera, that want to go to opera, and they want to know what's going on. And I think um, each one sees it, the, what news is differently, right? So the people that are in the industry, they want to know about one particular aspect of the, of the opera world, what's going on. Obviously, sometimes it dovetails, but I think that the audience members in particular, and especially seeing how they interact with the social media, what they really care about is who's performing where, what company's performing what, and those are the kinds of things that they're really into. I think both groups, obviously, like I said, they dovetail in many respects, but I think that the interests might be a little bit different, and, and obviously that shapes how we approach it. But I mean, in terms of like the basic news items that you'll see on Opera Wire, you're gonna see the, the season announcements. You'll see like my brother said, cancellations. You'll, you'll see, um, again, you, you might, you could also say there's like a fine line between PR and news, but for example, there's a lot of, lot of independent opera companies that don't necessarily have a platform to express themselves and to necessarily, you know, be shown to the opera world, right? And so they'll send us press releases about upcoming production that they're gonna do. And, you know, I think for, for my brother and I, that's part of our mission has always been, we did this, we don't wanna just be a, a, a new site about the Metropolitan Opera and the Lyric Opera of Chicago and the big a, opera a houses and the big European houses. We wanna be an opera company opera organization that's inclusive about um, the smaller, the, the independent companies that don't necessarily have those financial resources, but are doing just as amazing creative work. So they send me a press release. I want to put that out there. I want to let people know, especially the people in the audience that don't know what kind of opportunities there are in the opera world, that these people are doing these cool things. And yeah, on some level, you could see it as, oh, Opera Wire's, you know, promoting their event. But, but it's think, kind of like when a when a film when a film studio takes out a trailer, I mean it, that that and and every major publication like Variety or Hollywood Reporter are releasing those trailers for those for those companies and those companies have such a big PR machine that they can just put them in. People will see those trailers, but yet those are news stories because those are big event that big events that are happening. So you know, as Dave said, those those. Um, Whatever those events that those opera companies are announcing, in many ways, shape or forms, that also is part of the news cycle and what is about to happen no, in the I, opera. I, don't opera get me wars. wrong. I love it. And I think it's so, yes. it makes it such an equal place. And so, you know, your mm -hmm. season announcement for whatever pinch cut opera or for in series opera is right next to the story about Anna de Trepko. And so there's equal footing. But what I'm suggesting, though, is that maybe because. <laughs> There are companies that have PR machines behind them that they're putting mm -hmm. fake stories into the cycle, like certain soprano who was married to a certain conductor, you know, called at the last minute to sing this role right after she sang, you know, in another city and she showed up and she saved the day. And it's like, you know what, that was probably planned, you know. It, it's something that, well, you know, unfortunately, it's not... I, I don't. I don't really think that we can. We can know what is planned and what isn't. What we do know is that an encore can be very much planned, but it's still very much something that that does happen. And for some, for for these, for this, it's still part of, in some way, shape, or form, a, a news story. And it does happen. And I'm just trying to make your guys work easier. That's all. <laughs> anyway, I, you're doing great. So let's change the subject. Um, so COVID happened and then the BLM movement sort of got bigger this year. How did that change the way you guys work and how did that change the way you direct your contributors? And have you talked about maybe being more sensitive to 
you know, um, gender inequality and racial inequality, et cetera. Is this a conversation you guys had? Or just by virtue of you guys being people of color yourselves, was it always something that was in the back of your mind and now you're just being a bit more, you know, explicit about it? I think when when COVID hit, I think it was a very difficult moment because we weren't really sure what was going to happen. And we were like seeing the world tumble, tumble, tumble. And then all of a sudden, when all these protests, the BLM protests started happening, you know, it also put us in a very interesting conversation and topic. And what, how, how do we deal with it? What, what can we do to find a way so that we can be part of the conversation without doing what everyone else was doing? So for me, you know, what we did with, with, with BLM, I started having conversations with a lot of different Black artists. Now, we were having conversations with, with a lot of Black artists beforehand, but, but the conversations were shifting towards questions that I might have wanted to ask before, but weren't necessarily questions that I would have asked. And this time I was being, I, I had that liberty and that freedom to finally be able to ask them, how do you feel? Uh, what kind of what, what kind of racism have you experienced? Finally, these singers were giving us the, these answers and, and and having a conversation, really being able to open up. And they felt they were in a really safe place. And partly is because we had already given them that safe space. We we were we were always having conversations with all different types of artists and all different types of people. Never really, you know, thinking were we giving it enough. And that being said, you know. I think it really provided for some provided and is still providing because we're still doing as much as we can to have those conversations with those artists to be able to give them a voice and give them a platform for them to be able to show. And that being said, I know Dave also, you know. Yeah, I mean, one of the things that that uh, happened to me was I looked at our content and I said, you know, okay, we can have these interviews, we can have these conversations, but what else can we do in terms of informing the readers about Black culture, for example, and Black opera. And I looked at our website and I said, you know, we have our opera wiki page in which we kind of put a spotlight on the masterpieces and the composers and the singers and all these amazing artists. And I looked at it and I said, okay, we have some stuff, but I think we're really deficient in Black operas, uh, operas by Black composers and information about Black composers. And for me, it was an amazing experience because I realized how lacking my own knowledge was about composers like William Grant Still, yeah. music music history um, is racist. Know, it's not your fault. <laughs> it's not your fault. But 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 you know. But then but that's the thing. You come to realize we're all responsible in a way for for these kinds of situations. You come to realize like I shut my. I mean, I knew that William Grant Still was there. I just didn't bother to look at him. You know, that's on me. And now being in this position and saying like I have to own it. And I can do something by introducing and giving, using this resource, using this platform that I know a lot of people read and putting it there so that people have, a, they don't have an excuse, it's there, you know? And those are articles that we're gonna be sharing around and, and we're gonna to continue to expand. I mean, I have another writer that's, that's helping me with this little project of, of, of populating the opera wiki with operas by black composers, more black composers. And we're gonna do not only with black composers, we're gonna do it with other composers of color, other I mean, operas. This month, which is Hispanic Heritage Month, for sure, we want to, and we had done it prior, but we want to expand that now with uh, Latin American composers, with opera, uh, uh, Spanish operas, Mexican opera, operas that uh, people would not know part of our own Hispanic Hispanic heritage. So we we want to bring it so that 
you know, whatever we were doing and, and whatever, however diverse we had tried to be, we want to make it even more diverse and we want to make it even more, more open so that people feel like they can come to us and they can have a voice, a platform to be able to speak and, and have tough conversations because some of the conversations that we've been, we had with some of the singers, they were not very easy. And there were, there were a lot of things that you, you were hearing and, and you were just like, learning as you go i know from from my brother's series his wiki series i i when i was reading these articles i was learning so much i was like whoa and then i listened to some of the music um because i, I you know i i myself was very ignorant about some of these composers and i said wow well, i need to i need to finally open my ears and start learning and i was surprised by by the amazing music that is out there that doesn't get touched doesn't get heard because Troubled Islands, Troubled Islands. Everyone should hear Troubled Islands. Okay. So, um, I mean, I'm so glad you guys are saying these things, and I don't want to say I'm going to hold you accountable to it because I, you're your own thing. But <laughs> well, but that's okay. You should. You should. You should. I'm serious. You should because that's exactly what we. You know, it, it's important. We we want to hold ourselves to the highest standard, and and we we are very open to those kinds of dialogues. And people, again, it helps us a lot. Yeah. I mean, look, we're not perfect, and we know we we we've made mistakes, and we know that. Uh, we might be sometimes go by what what happens in the traditions but the beauty of art is that it opens you up to abstract thinking it opens you up to different places and you're constantly discovering and you're constantly learning so i mean this is such a tricky thing and i i'm so glad that you both are of you know latino descent or I, i don't know how you guys consider yourselves but I grew up in an inner city and I have immigrant parents and I sort of de- switch, code switched so that I could be accepted in the opera community, in the classic music community. And I feel like I lost some of myself in doing that. And now, finally, in 2020, people are starting to say, oh, we've been racist, you know. And have I been racist? Have I whitewashed myself, you know? And... I love Western European music so much. I mean, I spent my life devoted to it. And I know so much more about like French Baroque opera than I know anything about like Mexican traditional music or Filipino traditional music, you know. So I've got to go back and and do the work. But um, I also have to say that like maybe it's part of being part of like a racist system, you know, like music history is racist and music theory we're learning now is racist too. And uh, so I don't, I'm not mad at myself. I'm not, I can't blame myself because I did what I could do with the information I had at the time. But now mm-hmm. it's time for us to like create new curriculums for the young people and to talk about yeah. these things. Because you have a big audience. My audience is like a tiny fraction of what you guys have. <laughs> but, you know, I feel like responsible for amplifying these things, you know, especially as a person of color. Yeah. yeah. You know, it's it's interesting because, I mean, you, yeah, we have neglected our own music. And yet I feel like, you know, every time I hear music that comes from my origin, I feel so connected to it. I mean, I love listening to Sarsuela whenever I can. And then, you know, there's operas by Mexican composers like Florencia and Amazonas, which I'm a huge advocate for. And I wish I could hear it on some of the most major, it's on all the major stages because it's a work that I feel so strongly about. I feel it's incredibly beautiful and it's, and it could, it is, it should be part of the major uh, repertoire and it's not, and it's very sad. 
So we'll move on because we're now, uh, I should have stopped this interview a while ago, but I love, I'm really enjoying talking to you guys. Um, <laughs> how do you guys see opera going forward after this episode that we're in? I mean, like, I pray to God that there is actually a, a vaccine that comes about, you know, in the near future. But, you know, it's going to be a while before people feel comfortable going back to the theater. Um, what have you seen in these past, whatever, six months that you're excited about changes, innovations, and um, what do you feel will stay, will stay? You know, what, what are some of the thing, ideas that might actually, we might be bringing into the next era of opera? I'm going to preface this by saying that we still need live theater. People still Absolutely. want live theater. I can't wait to go back to a theater. And I'm sure there's millions of people around the world, especially if you look at over in Europe, clearly people want to go back to a live theater and mm-hmm. see opera. So that's not going to go away. So any predictions about live opera dying, that's not true. When, the moment that it's safe to do so, I'm sure that people will be ready to go. What I think, um, What I think is great, though, too, is that I think it's going to be hybrid. I think that what we're seeing with virtual opera and all and all those innovations that, that people are experimenting with right now, I think that that's important to be a part of because it's going to give new opportunities for a lot of different artists to have visibility that they might not have had if we just stuck to this model of everything being live all the time, right? Um, and at the same time, you know, I think that we're going to see adapt out of like people adopting new ways of doing live opera at least until it's fully safe to to do it the regular way and pack the houses. Now, in terms of like what I've seen that's really been exciting and really been interesting, I think obviously the Europeans have done a lot of really interesting stuff in this time. You know, you go to Madrid and what they did with Traviata, which, you know, it's an interesting concept. And I think that taken a step further in terms of how they use social distancing to tell that story um, with more time and with, with more people adopting a kind of a, a hybrid stru- structure like that, I think that's that's one option. I think you look at other opera companies doing what Berlin did with their garage parking lot. Um, that's one thing actually that I, I, I was kind of shocked that I didn't see more opera companies taking advantage of the fact that they could do outdoor stuff in the summer, mm-hmm. you know, in this country, especially. Obviously there's a lot of factors that go into it and there's a lot of safety precautions you have to consider. But I think that there was an opportunity there to do a little, to, to experiment, to, to test out those waters while the weather was nice. Now, obviously with the winter coming in, that's that's kind of, you know, that opportunity is probably gone for a, in a lot of cases, but there's some opera companies in Europe that are doing, I mean, we saw the drive-in theater here in the Phoenicia International Voice Festival, The Voice, and there's a lot of drive-in stuff going on in Europe as well. I wanna see more of that. And I think that there will be a, a opportunity for that in the future. Again, I think what we're seeing is that there's going to be more different kinds of ways of experiencing opera, and I think that that's really exciting. Francisco? I think what they basically said is, like, correct. Uh, Good for you. I I mean, I'm very, very, very excited to see what the Atlanta Opera does with the Big Tent series. Um, I will say that I thought what the Teatro San Carlo di Napoli did with their summer season doing their... um, their semi-stage productions of Tosca and Aida, you know, was unique and it allowed for the performers to do some acting and, and in some ways just concertize in, in the operas. I, you know, I've also just really enjoyed to see that, for example, a theater like Wiesbaden, you know, whether it was 50, 100 people, they still adopted social distancing. They put people inside a theater and they had recitals. And you know what? 
that was fine because it was live music and people were really excited. And how, however t- many tickets they were selling, it was sold out. So, you know, I think opera needs to be in a live theater. I do like that we've adopted this virtual performance and that people have gotten opportunities to be able to sing and sing in these virtual spaces because they've also created new audiences and new places for people to see opera. But I do hope that we can go back into this theater because there's nothing like listening to the, the voice with the theater amplifying those voices and just the energy of the audience. I think one of the things that I miss most seeing these virtual you know, performances is that energy, that those claps and just people being there because that also gives the performer so much so much yeah, energy, it's a dialogue. And yeah, for sure. so much spontaneity in the performance. I mean, yeah, th- that series that you mentioned earlier with these famous singers. I mean, I think it's great. I think it's a fantastic thing. But there's always these moments when I'm watching these and I'm just like, there's that silence and you can sense that the artist sense it because there's not there. The energy audience energy isn't there. The applause mm-hmm. isn't there. And and I, and I like to, to dovetail on my brother said, I mean, and I think we're seeing this with sports, mm-hmm. too, that the the audience the fans the people in the space are so vital to the energy that goes on in the games or in the performances it's such a vital part of it you know it's really interesting because i thought that and this has nothing to do with opera but yet it is because i thought that when i was going to watch you know the video music awards of mtv music video music awards and they were doing them with no audience or they were doing some semi whatever that it was going to be a same energy and the same thing because, oh, it's just pop music. But let me tell you what a difference it is not being able to see those performers without their audience as well. So it's kind of, it, it goes with every genre, everything. The audience is, is part of that spectacle, is part of that energy that performers feel or the athletes feel because they're work, they're, they're dialoguing, as you said. It's part yeah, of well, it. I don't want. I, so I I need to. I know there. you guys are not into being negative and to disparaging anybody who's in this business. So I'll ask you, who has hit it out of the park? Like who has done something in the past six months that was like that was awesome? Like th- thank God that somebody like that is out there being this courageous or this creative or whatever. I think, you know, I think everyone is really struggling to really figure out what they're doing. So, I mean, especially American companies, not so much in Europe, because Europe's basically, I don't want to say go, gone back to normal, but they're starting to perform again and they're starting to find and, and I want to just to And I just want to interrupt. I think it's also a really important litmus test what's going on in Europe because we're seeing different varieties of how people are approaching it. In Italy, they're approaching it one way. In Germany, another way. In Spain, a different way. We've just, you know, a couple of days ago, the news came out in Spain that a lot of local gatherings in Madrid are going back down to 10 people. And I was speaking with the opera company over there and, you know, they're waiting to see what happens. So I think it's a, there's a litmus test. We're going to see how, how things devolve in Europe and how things develop. So I don't know if anyone's hit out of the ballpark in, ter- in those terms. I mean, I think um, I was having a conversation about what happened in Salzburg and how that festival was a massive success and they pulled it off and they, they kind of put it together in a very short time. They came up with a very unique system of how to, you know, divide up different people that were working in the organization, color coding them so that each person knew, depending on which group they were part of, what they could do, how they were going to, how many times they were going to be tested, you know, how, how many people they were going to be exposed to at a time. And they managed to pull it off. So, I mean, in terms of, 
a successful model that we've seen. I think the Salzburg Festival definitely did a really, really solid job of putting the festival together quickly and having a plan and executing it. And you're seeing that, I think in Germany, they're adopting that plan to, to for their companies with different protocols based on the government, what the government's offering up. So I think some of the Italian festivals also did a really wonderful job because a lot of the performances were also live streamed for audiences who couldn't go there because of the limitation in the capacity. I mean, you know, Again, I think everyone is having such a hard time and struggling. And I think just by the fact that you either put a virtual gala on or you do put an outdoor performance out there, I think, and then you live stream it for your audience, I think, and in such a really short time, I think that that speaks levels to the fact that they want to commit and they want to continue to bring a live opera to their to their audience. So... Our audience knows how to find you. Um, they can go to opwire.com and it's so much content. <laughs> and now the, um, the news brief uh, Monday nights is it on the Dallas Opera Network. Thank you guys so much for being on Opera Box Score. Thank, Thank you, you so much, much for having us. This is Opera Box Score with George Cedarquist, Matt Cummings, Weston Williams, Ashley Hardgrave, and Oliver the Man. Camacho. New from Harmonia Mundi, German baritone, and inside the huddle guest from season five of the OBS, it's Samuel Hasselhorn and his debut recital CD, Stille Liebe, with pianist Joseph Middleton. Oh, they grow Stille Liebe, so I hardly know her. <laughs> it's not his debut recital CD, it's his debut recital CD for Harmonia Mundi. That's the label you want to be on. Trust uh, me, awesome. yes. That's what all the cool kids are on Harmonia Mundi. Except Harmonia, for me. Harmonia Mundi is the cool table in the uh, in the classical CD lunchroom. Uh, two of two of my like dreams in life are to be interviewed on Fresh Air by Terry Gross, not by Dave Davies. Yeah, and obviously. To, <laughs> and to be recorded by on, on Harmonia Mundi. A previous dream of mine was to sing a duet with Chris Thiele, but I don't know what happened to him anymore. Is he still singing? Is he just playing mandolin? He's just now? he's busy being the new Garrison Keillor. Yeah, there's no. a lot of stringed instruments involved. I don't it's Is not. there is there any more from from here? Live from here? Is that still happening? I mean, it might be live. It might not be there, but Okay. Might be Anyway, I miss I miss Prairie Home Companion Chris Thiele version. <laughs> yes. Anyway, that. But we also miss Samuel Hasselhorn because he's been busy recording a CD. Uh, the 2018 Queen Elizabeth competition winner and ensemble member at the Wiener Staatsoper offers an all Schumann leader program, includes the Heine Ballads and the 12 Kerner Leader, Opus 35. You know, oh, my you know favorite which, opus. You know which uh, NPR show I miss, Oliver, is Car Talk. I think that Car Talk is really what we need in these trying times. I agree with you. I've missed those guys. I mean, one might say we're the Car Talk of the opera world with our buddy buddy banter <laughs> i just want to clarify though that it's robert schumann leader not clara schumann leader because i know we are going towards gender equality on this show and so we should specify that's adorable that you think that people thought that far through uh Shila, <laughs> Shila is available on itunes spotify and amazon.com this just in the two-minute drill all right, listen up. Here's everything you need to know about what happened in Opera Land this week. Garrett McQueen, host of Minnesota Public Radio's Classical 24 and the station's only Black classical presenter, has been fired. 
Minnesota Public Radio President Duquesne Drew and American Public Media President Dave Kansas said their decision, quote, was not sudden and came after several conversations with Garrett over the past year regarding programming changes. McQueen, a self-described agitator, continues on as co-host of the podcast Triloquy, which spotlights musicians who are historically underrepresented in classical music. Dr. Anthony Fauci says theaters will not be able to open or perform with full capacities for another year or more. In a conversation with Jennifer Garner, Fauci said, quote, I think it's going to be a combination of a vaccine that has been around for almost a year and good public health measures. And quote, he noted that even if the country found a vaccine in November or December, the majority of the population would not have it until fall 2021. The 2020 gramophone nominees are out. Barbara's Vanessa starring Emma Bell, the historical informed Faust by Gounod starring Benjamin Bernheim and Veronique Jean, and Joyce DiDonato singing Handel's Agrippina will face off in the opera category. In the recital category, it's Kate, Lindsay, Kate Lindsay's Ariana, Sandrine Pio's CGMA, and friend of the show Jakob Josef Orlinski's Pace d'Amore. Nominations for solo vocal performances went to Nikki Spence and Julius Drake for Jana Cech's The Diary of One Who Disappeared, Gerald Finley and Julius Drake's recording of Schubert's Schwanen Gesang and Brahms's Fier Ernste Gesänge, and Schumann's Myrten with Camilla Tilling, Christian Gerhard, and Gerald Huber, a recording that does not feature Julius Drake. Moscow's Bolshoi Theater has canceled the final performance of Verdi's Don Carlo, slated for September 10th, as Ildar Abdrazakov has tested positive for coronavirus. Abdrazakov will not be joining the cast of Don Carlo at the Wiener Staatsoper set to open on September 27th. Italian-based Michele Pertuzzi takes over the role of King Philip for that production in Vienna. The AGMA Soloist Coalition has officially asked AGMA's Board of Governors to endorse Joe Biden for President of the United States. In a statement, the Soloist Coalition noted that the current administration, led by President Donald Trump, has repeatedly and publicly announced his intent to dismantle the National Endowment of the Arts and provided no support during the COVID-19 pandemic. Legendary soprano Edita Gruberova has canceled her upcoming recital at Maggio Musicale Fiorentino and will be ending her farewell concert tour. Quote, for Mrs. Gruberova, it was important to keep her voice in shape thanks to regular artistic performances, said Majo Musicala Superintendent and Alexander Pereira. Another quote, the situation created by the virus made it impossible to maintain a singing routine as all the events were canceled. Despite her extraordinary commitment, Edita Gruberova informed us today of her desire to end her career. London's Royal Albert Hall, described by the UK government as a, quote, crown jewel that must be saved, has launched an appeal for donations after 18 million pounds in losses due to COVID-19. Despite the government's 1.5 billion pound package to fund the cultural sector, the hall does not qualify for emergency grants. Craig Hassel, the hall's CEO, said, quote, this leaves us in an extremely perilous position with no way of replacing our lost income apart from a government loan which may or may not materialize. Chicago Opera Theatre has pivoted to an all-digital 2020-2021 season. That season begins this week with Stacey Garrett and Jerry Dye's The Transformation of Jane Doe. Also on the menu, Daniel Catan's Il Postino, Rimsky-Korsakov's Cachet the Immortal, Kamala Sankaram and Jerry Dyes talking up serpents, and Matthew Ressio and friend of the show Royce Vavrex, the puppy episode. 
Decameron Opera Coalition, a new collaboration between nine U.S.-based independent opera companies, has announced a multi-week online streaming performance of Tales from a Safe Distance, a reimagining of Boccaccio's The Decameron. Members of the coalition include Pittsburgh's Resonance Works, Lyric Opera of the North, Urban Arias, Bear Opera in New York, that's bear as in naked, not as in bear, Houston's Opera in the Heights, Chicago Fringe Opera, Milwaukee Opera Theater, Fargo-Moorhead Opera, Minneapolis's An Opera Theater, and composer and librettist Peter Hillard and Matt Borese, friend of the show. And in exit stage right, Belgian conductor Patrick Davin has died at the age of 58 after suffering a heart attack before a rehearsal at La Monet in Brussels. Following a long illness, baritone Adrian Clark has passed away. Born in Northampton in 1954, he sang for leading opera companies around the world, including Dutch National Opera, ENO, Glyndebourne, Opera North, and of course, Covent Garden. Christiana Ada Pierre, a French soprano who broke ground as the country's first black woman to make her mark on the international opera stage, has died at 88. And remembered for her four-decade career with the National Theater in Prague, Czech soprano Miloslava Fidorova has died at the age of 98. And on this day, September 14th, in 1716, it was the first performance of Angelica Vincitrice di Alcina by Johann Josef Fuchs in Vienna. In 1737, it was the birth of Austrian composer, brother of Franz Josef and friend of Mozart, Johann Michael Haydn in Rohrau. Poor guy, always has to be qualified. In 1760, birth of Italian composer Luigi Cherubini. In 1775, the first performance of Haydn's L'Incontro Improviso at Esterhazy. You see, you knew which Haydn I was talking about. I didn't even say his first name. Jumping ahead a century, in 1885, it was the birth of Italian opera conductor Vittorio Gui in Rome. In 1896, birth of Mexican tenor Jose Mojica in Mexico City. We are in the 20th century now. In 1905, the first performance of Victor Herbert's operetta Wonderland in Buffalo, New York. In 1920, Italian tenor Enrico Caruso made his last recording, the Crucifixus from Rossini's Messa Solennelle. In 1944, it was the birth of English tenor Martin Hill in Kent. In 1950, the birth of tenor Raul Jimenez in Santa Fe, Argentina. In 1954, the first performance of Benjamin Britten's opera, The Turn of the Screw at the Teatro La Fenice. In 1982, the first performance of Thea Musgrave's radio opera, an occurrence at Owl Creek Bridge, and one for Weston. On this day, September 14th, it was the first performance of Stockhausen's Freitag aus Licht at the Leipzig Opera in 1996. Were you even born then, Big W? And that's your two-minute drill.
So that was from the studio recording, the first studio recording, uh, the one from 1982 of Lucida Lamamor featuring Edita Gruborova. That's the one conducted by Nicola Rascino with Alfredo Kraus as uh, Edgardo. Man, that phrase, you can watch all the videos. There's tons of examples of her doing that live. She does those phrases on one breath, and it's insane. And I am a huge Gruberova stan. And, you know, she was... Is, is this redemption for her from her stunning <laughs> Lucia loss in last week's rebroadcast? So she's a singer that I, at first, when I first heard her, I thought the voice was really like metallic and steely and didn't had lacked warmth. But I was young and I didn't understand because I was like crazy about Kathleen Battle. But the longer I, you know, learned about opera, <laughs> the more I realized that what she does is like held in coloratura type singing. And uh, yeah, mm. what breath control, what technique. And she has a really amazing life story, um, some tragedy in there. And um, it's really disappointing that, I mean, I never heard her sing live, but that there's so many people that were looking forward to hearing her give a final farewell recital a la Cher. And she decided to call it quits because <laughs> I agree with her. It's like, it takes work to keep your voice in shape. Even for somebody like me, who's like, whatever, 40 or 30 years younger than her, like, I haven't sung since, like, March, and I sound like crap right now because I just haven't had time to, yeah. to sing. I hear that. And Oliver, <laughs> you're in the flower of your youth, even though you have been at the performance of Stockhausen's... Uh, I was already 30 years old uh, by that point. <laughs> <laughs> I'll have you know that as a three-year-old, I enjoy I just want to say one thing really quickly. <laughs> um, I asked Francisco what he would like to hear, and he talked about Donizetti and how much he loves Donizetti for the drama and for the beauty of the line. He's a big bel canto fan. Both of them are. And so I said, okay, well then pick a Vraniava Nel Silencio, Cabaletta, pick a singer. And he, like, without hesitating a beat, he said Gruberova. So that was for you, Francisco. Thank you. I think the uh, uh, the Gruberova clip uh, kind of, you know, uh, obviously her, her she's canceling her stuff and it's the it's the latest um uh casualty of the COVID 19 crisis and i think that the big punch in the gut this week obviously was the uh statement from dr fauci who said there might be a whole year um past next year um which is just oh that's that's rough to hear uh I, I do I do think that there's a, a certain grain of salt because obviously things are always changing. If there's one thing we've learned from the pandemic and theater's responses to pandemic, things are always changing. Um, but you you are seeing you know more performances in areas uh, in countries where the pandemic is more under control. And I think that there there is hope for it not being quite that uh, bad. Um, but it does require people to, as Ashley says, to wear their damn masks. <laughs> and it, it, it does require something of the general public. And I think that um, opera companies right now should be focusing a lot of energy, uh, not just opera companies, but theater companies, artists um, should really be pushing to kind of get their message out there and really pushing for um, policy changes that will make it possible for the arts to come back as soon and as safely as possible. Yeah, it's tough for really any message to get more than 10 seconds of airtime these days. There's just so much going on that our brains have kind of melted. But 
uh, that I think with this interview that what Fauci is saying, like hit that the messaging of this is a long haul recovery is a big part of the battle to set expectations so that people can actually figure out what to do. Agree. Right. There's a there's a couple of things to think about. You know, when we when we look at someone like Dr. Fauci, uh, this is this is not someone who is new to public health. This is not somebody who is new to presidential administrations and handling public health crises. He's worked for a number of different president administrations. Uh, so he's you know he's he's done this more than once. He's done this with uh, pretty much every major you know illness that has come through to sort of put in the American the American public. Uh, and Weston, you mentioned you know that there are. There are houses and other places in countries where you know the situation has been more handled, and I think the operative word there, are, or the operative phrase rather, is countries that have handled the situation differently. <laughs> right. Uh, you know, uh, America is not uh, in the leaderboard when it comes to doing this well, or frankly, at all. Uh, and so, I have a slightly more pessimistic, slightly leaning more on the validity of his statement in terms of like the end of twenty one being the first time when this makes sense just from a public health mm. perspective because we've got we've got a lot of folks that are our neighbors metaphorically and physically that that may not feel the same level of urgency about this that we do both as as performers people that rely on our respiratory systems to quite literally do our jobs uh you know we're much more hypersensitive to sort of how we as a village will have to move together in unison to make this happen. Uh, and I think that there's there's a lot of folks that are trying to make the public health the political. And that is, I think, kind of where we're getting stuck. Uh, and it's wildly frustrating to watch. Uh, and, and some days it takes all my spoons just to sort of manage it. Uh, and so when I when I first saw the the headline and started to watch, you know, and listen to the interview, I I just kind of was like, yeah, seems about right. Seems about right. Yeah. Because if we think about how long vaccines take, you know, I mean, they're doing double blinds. There have to be, you know, 28 day cycles. They've just started those. There's no, I'm sorry, I don't care who you listen to, I don't care where you lean on a spectrum. There's no way we're going to have an effective virus before the election. Full stop, period, end of sentence. Public health is not political. But um, I'm sorry, I may have jumped over somebody because I got heated for a moment. Let me back up. Let me let y'all <laughs> No, hear but I was going to say, plus the financial risk that American companies would invest in getting right. artists, you know, at the theater and, you know, bringing the marketing teams back on board, et cetera. When even if the Ro if Royal Albert Hall is having trouble, right. you but know, I mean, you look at American Bolshoi, you know, I don't know what their situation is over there because but I mean, they're canceling <laughs> performances. And, you know, right now, Germany and Spain are somehow managing to put, you know, and, and Austria are managing to put shows on. But I also feel that they have government behind them. And if they cancel, right. it's not like they're going to be in the hole that much like they would if we were like Lyric Opera of Chicago, which is, you know, not going to be able to put on a show without risking a lot of capital. Yeah, I, I think that uh, the, the story about the AGMA co uh, Soloist Coalition uh, endorsing Joe Biden uh, is, I, I think, in my view, the the, the kind of thing that... Uh, artists and companies need to be focusing on is I think there's a temptation with the pessimism to sort of sit down and sort of like just kind of let it wash over you but there there needs to be a level of organizing of protesting not just this but obviously all sorts of injustices at the moment uh, uh, in order to get this change done and we need it, this needs to be some institutional strong changes 
if uh, things are going to make it over the next extra year. Well, you um, absolutely do. And it's it's no surprise that a union like AGMA is putting its money where its mouth is, right? Every other union in this country falls on one side or the other of a presidential election. And AGMA should be no exception to that rule. They should be the as they have reason done. for having unions. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Is to advocate on a massive scale, the way one that individuals can't really compete on. Y'all, how surprised were you turning to the home team here that COT, Chicago Opera Theater, has pivoted now to an all-digital 2021 season? This is not what we were hearing from them some months ago. Times have changed, and here we are now with the season beginning this week, all-digital for the whole season. I was surprised, um, but I also wonder if they if they leaned to a place where what we're seeing this in so many places, we're seeing it in professional sports, we're seeing it in public performances of all kinds, we're seeing it in higher education, where it's a big game of reverse chicken. Everybody's waiting on somebody else to like make the choice and be the leader and then fall in line behind them so that they're, you know, following suit. <laughs> and there's, there's a real unease in that uncertainty when, when your organization and your, and your, um, your compatriot organizations are not making moves and making choices. Um, and I think perhaps for them, maybe the comfort wasn't just coming out of the gate and making a choice and making quite frankly, the safer choice, because if they had said, well, we're going to start doing live stuff in 2021 and then nothing from a public health perspective changes, then they have to pivot again. Then they have to change everything again. If they come right out of the gate and say, we're going digital for at least a year, it buys it buys sanity, it buys time, it helps restore the coding on all of your nerves as a producer. I yes. imagine that that is, you know, that, that if, if I were on that decision-making team, that's where I would have come from. Plus, in addition to all of the safety ideas that you're talking about, it also gives you more creative control over what you physically are able to do, exactly. as opposed to having to wait eight months to see what you might be able to do, and then having to refigure everything. Also, a quick correction, uh, Kamala Sankram and Jerry Dye's opera is called Taking Up Serpents, Not Talking but Up Serpents. That would serpents. be really cool. That'd be a very <laughs> different opera. I want to talk to snakes. That sounds I mean, fun. you can see what, I mean, you can see why I would have read it that way. <laughs> we don't talk about a certain author anymore, but uh, she definitely would have liked it. <laughs> All right, oh, let's wrap wait, this wait, show wait, up. Wait, 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 we didn't talk about, oh. we didn't talk about Garrett McQueen. I, yeah. And I expressly put in a request that I wanted to hear Oliver's take on this, given that he's got a little bit of, uh, he, he's got a little bit of background in being in the radio. And Oliver, if you don't want to give me your take, I'll give you mine, because we all know I'm going to talk about it. But please, go ahead if you've got something. Well, apparently, you know, they warned him because he was um, changing playlists. And I think his show was like an overnight show. So I'm not sure what, how large of an audience, you know, he Ah, the old three to six a.m. Yeah. slot. So I doubt there are people who like have their whatever their pre-planned you know schedule that they got in the mail. Like, ooh, on at two o'clock in the morning on September tenth, they're going to play Dvorak <laughs> New World Symphony, and he got something else instead. So I seriously doubt that th there was audience um, disappointment that McQueen was changing playlists. There is some truth to the fact that you have to report what you're playing, but. You, it's not like you have to report it in the minute. If you change something, you can you can report it and it's fine. Everybody gets their royalties and you don't break any FCC rules. So I don't really buy that um, 
you know, his adapted playlists were causing that much grief over there at NPR. So, um, I mean, he describes himself as an agitator and I haven't spoken to him yet personally, but I would like to see just how, you know, agitating he is and how, you know, bold he was and maybe what he was, how he was framing his choices. And maybe he upset some of the white classical music audience and maybe some, you know, donors, um, subscribers, what do you call them over there, you know, complained about him. Um, but that feels racist. So um, I don't know. And I would, I, I do, I already asked him to come on our show. We'll see what he says. I would love to hear from himself. But Ashley? It's, it's very hard for me. I'm trying to choose my words very carefully here. Um, I feel like it is wholly impossible to not see the optics of how this would look, even if everything that they are using as an explanation is valid. And I believe that there are ways that, you know, there are protocols that you have to put into place to change programming and amend, you know, what's going to go on air so that royalties can go to the right parties, et cetera. I don't think there's any way possible that somebody in the room or somebody that it was a secretary of somebody in that room didn't think about the optics of what this would look like, which means, one of, which means one of two things, either they were fully tone deaf and they didn't recognize it, or number two, they were cognizant of it and they didn't care. And I'm not sure which one of those would make me angrier. Uh, so it was, uh, it was really disheartening to read. Uh, it was, it was frustrating because this is a guy who was on the air down the street from the heart of the George Floyd uprising. And, and it was, it, it was completely unconscionable to me that something like this would actually happen regardless of whether or not, I mean, even if you're coming at this from like a crummiest PR band-aid administration, like there, there are ways that this could have happened where, where a reprimand could have happened that wouldn't have been reported and gone public in this way. I, it's just, the whole thing is, is really, it's, it's maddening. I've never felt safer in my current job than I do right now during this, you know, racial uprising, because I am the only person of color at my other job. So I was shocked. <laughs> I was absolutely shocked. Like you said, the optics of this, like, oh my gosh, what are you doing? It's like another police shooting, you know, like, uh, okay. Yeah. yeah. I, I mean, in, in some ways, like from a, from a cultural from a cultural relevancy standpoint, a, you know, a lot of these bigger organizations kind of have one job right now and it's representation. Like you have one job and it's to maintain your representation. This was the one place where they had representation and they fully dropped the ball either on purpose or not. And either way, I, yeah, Garrett, I'll be, I, I would love if you come and chat with us. I'd be really interested to hear what you have to say. Two quick things. Uh, Christiane Edapier on one of my first recordings of Abduction from the Seraglio, I never knew she was black. I swear to God, I just found that out like reading this story. And uh, great voice, really, really, you know, dark tone quality. You don't expect it to have coloratura capability. So I remember being very excited when I first heard her sing Abduction in the Colin Davis recording as Constanza. And just quickly about our, on this day, I know like sometimes it's like, what are you telling me about these bizarre 18th century operas that nobody ever stages again? But if you really, <laughs> if you go back and listen to our On This Day, there's even some shows that we had to cut out just for length. But it's a really interesting history of opera, like, you know, the idea of, you know, these Italian operas happening in German speaking countries and then going over to the idea of radio being a thing and then operetta being a thing and recordings being a thing and then Stockhausen being a thing. It's like we got we had all of opera against all odds. I know we had all <laughs> of opera history in this on this day. 
And you know that here at Opera Box Score, we are all hardcore um, Michael Hyden stands. <laughs> Poor guy. <laughs> Garrett McQueen, if we're talking names, Garrett McQueen is the perfect name for a quarterback. Can I just say that? Some people have names that you're like, that is a quarterback name. Garrett McQueen, that is a name that I want to see starting on the field. All right, let's wrap this show up. Good call, bad call on Opera Box Score. Great to be kicking off season six with all four of you on the show. And of course, all of you are listeners as well. I told you I was going to tell you about my fantasy football team. Tobias Wright, for it is he, and I are part of the Opera Philadelphia Fantasy Football League this year. Amazing. Uh, we'll be talking a lot more about that as the weeks go by. We're thrilled to be part of it. There's some very prominent opera names and personalities that are in the league um i did the draft toby was uh, otherwise engaged that day and um he's very very sad <laughs> i'm gonna plug uh, a recent video that osia put out like at this point two weeks ago because we were on break but uh, all of their videos are good and you know that we're big fans but they made a video that was a get out the vote video and it's about six minutes long. I think it's six minutes long, and you don't know quite where it's going. And like, it's it's clever. It's, I enjoyed the it. The ending is so surprising, and it make it'll you will you will lol for real. So go ahead and check that out. Go, you know, subscribe to Osea, hit that like button on their YouTube, whatever. But uh, you'll see what I'm talking about. It begins, I think, with like um, Nadine Sierra singing Quantum Envo or something like that, or Nicole. And Nicole we'll get a link. Yeah. To that on our website, operaboxscore.com. Get out the boat. Well, wrapping up the show. Well, no, no, no. There's Matt coming. I'm passing the baton, baby. Matt coming. We're a seamless, seamless operation here tonight. That was was Uh, like a bobbled snap. uh, Some cool news out of the new music world today. Uh, The Recordy Publishing House announced that they signed an exclusive deal uh, with the Bang on a Can composer collective, Michael Gordon, David Lang, and Julia Wolf are those three composers involved. And uh, uh, I'm a huge fan of all of their work, and I can't wait to see what comes out of Recordy from them. Actually, Hargrave. If you're not familiar, there's a new internet phenomenon that's come out during Quar, and it's called Versus, and it's spelled V-E-R-Z-U-Z. Uh, and it's a lot of online musical battles between between some musical greats. Uh, but this week's versus was the best probably ever. Uh, it's Gladys Knight versus Patti LaBelle. They were online hanging out for three hours, going through their catalog. There was indeed live singing. There was a surprise Hail Mary guest at the end. I was overwhelmed. I it was That is what joy looks like to me. Patti LaBelle, Gladys Knight on versus. The women are in their 70s. Do yourself a favor, go. <laughs> Ashley, have you read the Hunter Harris write-up in Vulture? No, I highly recommend it. Yes, okay, I'm gonna do it's it. so funny. Weston Williams. Well, uh, good news, everyone. We've hit the big time. Uh, we've been mentioned in the venerable print publication, Opera News. Uh, and this is the quote, which I will read in its entirety. Quote, if you can stand some body-buddy banter, Opera Box Score Panel members are diverse in their expertise and offer lively discussion of unusual repertoire, relevant issues, and even a lightning round breakdown of industry gossip. And if that ain't us, folks, what is? Buddy, buddy. You said body, body. 
That's uh... body, body, buddy, buddy. I... <laughs> that's me. I that's me and Dominic team. Don't, don't mix it up. So. Isn't that why people come here is for the buddy, buddy? It's band? the buddy, buddy. <laughs> I thought that was the whole reason I got hired. <laughs> Wow, opera news standards really slipping over there. That's it for this week's edition of America's Talk Radio Show about opera. Our announcer is Norm Waddell at normwaddell.com, N-O-R-M-W-O-O-D-E-L.com. Our theme song is Vodka Inferno, written and performed by the Diablo Swing Orchestra. On Facebook, search for Opera Box Score. Be sure to share and comment on our posts on Twitter and Instagram. We're at Opera Box Score. And this podcast version of our show is available wherever you get your pods. The views and opinions expressed on Opera Box Score are solely those of the show's creative team. Any rebroadcast, reproduction, or other use of the accounts of this show without the express written consent of Opera Box Score would be totally cool. The creative consultant of Opera Box Score is Oliver Camacho. For our guests, David and Francisco Salazar, and your co-hosts, Matt Cummings, Weston Williams, and Ashley Hardgrave, I'm George Cedarquist. Asking you to continue the conversation about opera while you tank in your fantasy football league in week one. We're back with an all-new show next on September 23rd. More opera headlines, maybe an interview with Garrett McQueen, more hot takes, more frustrating technology. Join us.